Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. Welcome back, everybody. This is JT from Retro WDW. Here we are with episode 75.5. We're going to call this one a chat with Ray. Sitting in with me today is Ray DeForest. Ray has done so many cool things, and I thought it would be awesome to get him on here and just kind of pick his brain and get his end of it because we don't normally get to talk with somebody that was in entertainment and Ray has done a lot and as we get into this uh, conversation with Ray here uh, you're going to hear some great stories and some some really interesting things that you probably didn't know he was in or you're going to learn a little bit about what happened behind the scenes so uh, I'd like to welcome Ray here. How you doing Ray? Hi, how are you? Hi, everyone. I'm great. I'm here sitting in New York City, where I live and have lived for quite a while. It's where I'm originally from. And the clouds are rolling in. I think it's going to have a little rain this evening. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been hit or miss. It's hot here today. Is it hot there today? Uh, it's We've had really nice weather. It's uh, been like well, the other night it was like 55 degrees, yeah. and then it went up to 80, 81 during the day. So it's kind of crazy, but it's I think typical June weather, it's really nice, the humidity's not high because it rolls in in July and August, but I live on the Hudson River, so we tend to get a breeze, and the river keeps us a little cooler, so we're good. All right, well, uh, why don't you tell us about yourself, kind of what got you started in the entertainment industry, and then sort of what uh, led you to Disney uh, in Florida after, you know, you got your start? It's kind of a crazy story, uh, and I'll try to summarize it because God knows I can go on a little long. So feel free to interrupt me if I start veering off. But, <laughs> okay, no um, problem. Um, I had I did none, little to none theater at all until I got to college. I mean, I was one of the three kings in kindergarten, and as in we three kings, um, to see the baby Jesus, and then. Uh, in my senior year of high school, my friends were in a musical, and they needed a tall guy to play a butler, and they begged me to do it, so I did it. But I was a swimmer, a sports guy, and theater was never on my my uh, calendar or even a thought. And then I went to college as a swimmer, and they needed a – they were doing – at University of Maryland, I was a freshman. It was my – spring of my freshman year. By the way, I was never a good student. I hated it. <laughs> I always wanted to draw or garden or cook. And I went to the University of Maryland and I majored in ornamental horticulture. I'm wow. not even sure what that means at this point. Um, I don't think I knew back then either. So you haven't <laughs> haven't used it yet. All right. Well, I have some beautiful house plans. There you go. <laughs> and I had a gardening show on HGTV at one time. So 
it, it's all proved to uh, been worthwhile for me in my career. Um, but they needed a body in Jesus Christ Superstar, and they asked, they saw me and said, you know, we need a, we're doing Jesus Christ Superstar, it's a modern thing, and we need a guy in pink hot pants and a bare chest and with a great body, you want to do it? <laughs> so I went, and I, I was like, sure, you know, I was like this in-shape swimmer who had been swimming since he was five years old. I went to the audition, they said, well, you have to sing. I said, uh, oh, I don't sing. They said, well, yeah, I sing. Can you sing something? And I sang Mac the Knife because that's what my parents' favorite song. I grew up listening to that kind of music in the Rumpus Room in Staten Island. And they were like, yeah, you can sing. I was like, oh, okay. They said, so um, let's see you dance a little. And then they put me in the show. And the musical director came to me and said, uh, we need you to sing a line. And I was like, again, I am not a singer. So he took me in a room and he gave me the one line, it's strange for I am sure I saw you with him. You were right by his side and yet you denied. And he's like, you know, you could sing. If you wanted to be a singer, you could sing. And I said, well, I never really thought about it. He goes, look, after we get through the show, if you want to sing, learn to sing, I will, I'll be, I'll work with you. I said, okay, whatever. I I do this thing, they hand me a mic, I get to sing, and I instantly find my place in the world. I know that this is it. This is everything as a young gay man. This was everything and every place I wanted to be. It was magical. That's awesome. And... Um, he, I went to him and I said, I want to learn to sing. And he said, well, let's work on some stuff. And then I met this girl, Angela, who is still one of my best friends, who's a, who was a successful actress and now a successful acting teacher. She said, look, I do this summer stock up in the Catskills or the Poconos. And, uh, you know, you, why don't you, you should apply for it. And I said, well, I don't sing. I don't have heads. She goes, look. You sound, when you sing, you sound very much like this friend of mine who also goes up there. He does all the leads. You kind of sound like him. And I said, we'll take your picture. We'll send his tape in with your name on it. You'll get hired. You'll be in the chorus. It'll be just like doing Jesus Christ Superstar. So it'll be great. I said, okay. We sent it in, and I got hired to do summer stock. Just like in the movies. We lived in a cabin out in the back. We did, like, five shows over the summer. We waited tables and then did shows and danced and sang. And it was the first day we're all sitting there on the floor. Her friend, last minute, couldn't come. The guy who I sent the tape in, he couldn't come. Um, something happened with his family or something. And so they start announcing the cast. And they announced, we're doing Candide. Well, Candide is like one of the hardest shows ever. <laughs> and in the lead of Maximilian, Ray DeForest. Wizard of Oz, Scarecrow, Ray DeForest. Company, one of the husbands, Ray DeForest. Chorus line, lead man, Ray DeForest. And I thought, I remember looking at Angela like, WTF? Like, <laughs> what? I, and she just, and meanwhile, she had the female leads and all this. She was like, just remain calm. We will figure, we'll get you through this. Well, by the end of the summer, I was singing. I was choreographing part of the shows. The director put me under his wing. I learned to direct. It was learning under fire, which has been the story of my career. <laughs> so 
I mean, it was crazy. I went back to the University of Maryland, did shows, and then, again, I was I was still a horticulture major. Yeah. Completely untrained. And it was my junior year. I was going into my junior year. It was the summer of my sophomore year. I was driving by. I lived in D.C. I decided to stay in D.C. I did, had no desire to go back to Staten Island. And where I grew up, Staten Island, New York. Um, it's one of the five boroughs of the city. And I stayed down there and I got a job at a country club, waiting tables, having a great time with this good friend of mine, hanging out in D.C. We lived in D.C. A friend of mine, her parents were the ambassadors to a African country. And we got to stay in their townhouse on Embassy Row. Oh, that's cool. And it was like the craziest kind of thing. I was driving my mom's 1971 LTD with a vinyl top and and hidden headlights, which I loved. Yeah, driving. that's like that's driving. classy. It was like driving a hearse. It was so big. Yeah. Um, I could I could fit like 15 friends in there, and we could drive around to the club. Um, I was driving by, and on the radio, suddenly there's an announcement: Walt Disney's in town, and they're auditioning. They're doing a big show at the Kennedy Center. If you ever wanted to work for Disney, you should audition because nobody's there they're auditioning at the kennedy center go to the fourth floor to the audition rooms and i look up and i am literally in front of the kennedy center Me- meant to be and i thought well i you know i mean my i come from a working class family we didn't really have the money to go to like Di- a disney world we went to the jersey shore and we lived this great life but those were that was a big luxury we just couldn't really afford so it was kind of a dream to know, you know, go to Disney. So I pulled in. There was nobody there. And they said to me, again, totally untrained, can you sing? And I was like, well, I've done a couple of shows, but I don't really, I don't have a song. I didn't know I needed to sing. They said, well, it is a musical. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They said, just tell the piano player what you can sing. And I said to him, can you play Mac the Knife? He's like, you sure? I go, because it's kind of a big song for someone who doesn't know if they can sing. I go, don't worry. I got this. <laughs> I was so full of myself, you know, I'm not, I'm 18 or 19 years old and I sang Mac the Knife and they hired me. They, I danced, I played, I was, I was goofy. I was Br'er Bear. I was a chimney sweep. We sang, we danced in the Kennedy Center, this gigantic show with the kids of the kingdom, which they called the Mouseketeers when they would go out kind of a thing. And, um, Barnett Ritchie hired me for that. And Barnett Ritchie was just, I think, right pre-COVID was made a Disney legend. She she did the, she did it. She also wrote, she wrote so many shows for Disney, but she did that, what was it called? It's called Fantasmic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the water show at Disneyland uh, with the big dragon and all that. And Mickey is the sorcerer, is apprentice and stuff. She wrote that. She, so she was indoctrinated into the Disney legend. She's now a Disney legend. And she said to me, she started out as a kid of the kingdom, which was a summer job at Disneyland, and she ended up running entertainment for years and years. And she said to me at the end, she said, you know, I think you've really got something going on, and I don't know how serious you are about your career. If it's just fun, it's all okay. But if you ever want to work for us, give me a call. I said, okay. Got back in my LTD, drove, you know, went back to the University of Maryland. I did my semester in the fall. We did an, I did another show for University of Maryland at the Kennedy Center, and I thought, this is what I want to do. I'm going to call her. I called her. She said, listen, I'll get you, don't come to L.A. It's too far. 
you have a you need to train and you need to work hard but i'll call florida i'll set you up you want it i said yes wow i told my parents i i was quitting school they had a they had a fit they didn't get it what are you doing you're ruining your life you'll never <laughs> make a living and i had two hundred dollars and a suitcase left college my junior year and moved to florida I knew some people down there that I met, the costume people who did the show at the Kennedy Center with me, offered me to sleep on their couch. I slept on their couch for eight weeks. I got indoctrinated into the character department. Within four months, I had my own apartment. I was working as the lead Goofy. I was dancing in, in every parade, and then about six months in, I got a call from Forrest Bayreuth, who was another absolute legend at Walt Disney World. He was in charge of Kids of the Kingdom and all the convention shows and everything, and he called me and said, I got a call from Barnett Ritchie. Apparently, you've got something. Come and audition for me. So I went in, and what do you think I sang? Back that night. There it is, yep. Because <laughs> that's the only kind of thing. I was not trained. I didn't really have this repertoire. <laughs> and he said, my God, you're such a great crooner. And... I want you to understudy all the Kids of the Kingdom shows at the castle and start learning all the convention shows. And within six, seven months, I was in every show on the property. I knew every show. And then the following June, I was made a full-time Kid of the Kingdom and Showtime singer. And I was made assistant to the choreographer uh, for the Tencennial celebration, which was, you know, was an amazing time. This is 1979. I started at Walt Disney World. Yeah. Um, I had amazing managers, amazing people, and I helped choreograph parts of the small parts of the parade. We taught classes and choreography downtown Orlando because we hired like I don't know, 800 people for that parade. It was a huge time, and then we went right in. My group opened Epcot. So we went right in from Tencennial into opening Epcot, and I did everything you could possibly do. It's, we, Those of us who worked, we consider it the golden years of Walt Disney Entertainment. It was before Eisner really came in, um, and they really looked at us, especially Kids of the Kingdom, because we were like the replacement Mouseketeers. We wore the Mickey Mouse sweatshirts and... We were all in 19 or 20 or 21 years old, um, and we represented the company. We would go on tour. We would fly on the Mickey Mouse One plane that everybody goes, oh, my God, what was that like? Well, it was just a crappy little jet. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. Mickey Mouse on it. I, I got that. I want to ask you about that because that's in my notes here. So you flew on the plane. We talked about this earlier, and I have yeah. in my notes, you said it scared you to death. It scared me to death. It was small. I didn't, you know, it, I was used to being on these, like, big, big jets, and this was a tiny little plane, and we would go around, and I'd be like, are, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, like, it was so crazy. And then we would arrive somewhere, and they would put you in, like, a navy blue trench coat and, a, uh, and, and like, comb our hair back and give us briefcases and, like, black pants to walk off the plane, and there would be, like, kids with our you know we love you and all this we look like uh, and uh, no, no nothing bad here but we look like mormons going out on the on our like why, travel why did they make you put on a trench coat what was the point I of that no i i have no idea they just wanted us to look like a i have no idea it was so bizarre 
and then you so bizarre. You landed it on Disney property too, didn't you? With that, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We landed way, and you know, back then you have to remember this was pre Epcot, yeah, and this was before Hollywood Studios. So, you know, I and this is when Lake Buena Vista was that small little village with brown buildings. You have to remember Disney's original original plan uh, when he did Florida uh, was that every road would have a curve. There were no straight lines because he thought that when you look down the road, if you never see, if you just, if it just goes straight ahead and it just never ends, it's just a horrible feeling driving like that. So instead he wanted everything to curve. So all the original roads, all the original plans, everything curved. So when you were driving through property, through all that lush swamp land, basically, yeah. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. You, you were always looking ahead at trees and rivers and waterways and stuff like that. So, you know, when we worked there, you know, we rehearsed at, and the, at the parade garage, which was kind of behind the Magic Kingdom, along a waterway. We came out from rehearsal one night in this garage, which was in the middle of nowhere, walking out to our cars, and there were like three alligators sitting in front of our cars. <laughs> and we all ran back inside like, oh! And they were like, just run in a circle if they come after you. They can't run in circles. We were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> run in a circle? Sure. Like, what are you, nuts? Sure. Okay. Now, I mean, we slept in that We slept in that building, rehearsing for Epcot and rehearsing for parades many a time. But it was a very different time. Again, it was the kind of golden age. There were a lot of rules, <laughs> probably safety rules that should have been followed. Maybe they weren't. Like when I had to play Frankenstein in the big Halloween show in the village, and they put me up on a 30-foot lift in a windy night with <laughs> nothing to hold on to, no seatbelt, no nothing, just standing up there shaking, thinking I'm going to fall to my death. At Lake Buena Vista. Yeah, now they're all belted into the floats and everything. Oh, got everyone, handles yeah, and we didn't. Yeah, we didn't have any of that on parade floats. We didn't. We would get up on stuff and sing and dance. There was nothing to hold. There were no belts. There were no nothing. Nothing, nothing to could hold on. you back, anyways, Ray. Right? That's the. <laughs> so that's kind of true. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was a great time for us because we were heralded as a representation of the company. And the company treated us like we were very important. And um, it it really changed when Eisner came in on the company my my last couple of years. It, he kind of felt that if it wasn't revenue um, for the company, then why were they doing it? So things like a show in front of the castle or, uh, you know, these other, you know, like the, uh, the Can-Can show um, in, in a... Uh, in the park, the Diamond Horseshoe Review. Yes. I mean, they just they just looked at that like, well, this is a waste of money. We're paying all these people to be entertainers, but what does it make us? Let's turn that into a restaurant. We, we can we we should just have the characters in front of the. We don't need singers and dancers. That's just a waste of money. And they're you know they considered us. He really considered us BGM. They called it background music ah. so we were we were no different than the music you hear on main street and it really changed it changed how it felt to work there um uh, you know and years after i left it changed i mean there you know there there just isn't as much live entertainment as it used to be and it used to be such a great opportunity i mean it really taught me the commercial side of being in this business. I mean, we were there and they told, you know, you're here because we make money 
you know, if we don't make money, we can't afford, like, it, it was very commercial, and which taught me, and it also gave me, you know, at, when I left in 1984, I was there five months, uh, five years. Um, when I went for jobs, they said, well, where did you just work? And I said, oh, I worked for Disney for five years. They would hire me without even seeing me. Yeah, it just has that, I mean, that uh, panache yeah. to it that, you know, just... Absolutely, and, and they knew if I worked there five years, they could count on me. Because as a, as a performer on that level, you're, you're hired because you're good, obviously, but you're also hired to do, we used to do seven shows a day in front of that castle in the heat. I was just going to ask that. You, what was that like? So you said you were wearing a sweatshirt and it didn't matter the day, uh, right? And it was polyester. Oh. We, were, we were covered in polyester. So we would wear short sleeve, blue and white. Well, it, it first started out, these polyester bell bottoms, very tight. Uh, I wish I had that body now. Um, <laughs> polyester black pants with black dance shoes and a red, white, and black Mickey Mouse short sleeve, full polyester knitted top. In July. And we would do in in the in August when it's ninety four percent humidity. Oh. And it would get so that that stage that's in front of the castle at that time was a was a secondary build it wasn't originally built in uh when they built the castle and they added it later because they decided to have a stage so it was just a wooden stage and then painted to look like it uh, you know was meant to be there and let me tell you something by the fifth show of the day at four o'clock in the afternoon that sh that stage is baking in the sun and by the end of the show when we would wear capizio dance shoes those capizio dance shoes are they're the shoes that everyone back then wore. They still wear them. They're what you dance in. They're like a, a full leather shoe with a leather sole, but there's no construction. There's no there's no um, arch support. There's no support throughout the shoe. It's just leather. It's like wearing a ballet shoe almost. Okay. With a very tiny heel, but let. And then they put. It's called dance rubber. They put it on the front of the shoe and on the heel so that you can grip the floor and you can dance without slipping. By the end of every show, the the glue that held that rubber onto the shoe would melt <laughs> and the rubber would come off and we would be dancing on the, with the gooey glue all over the stage. We would come off, we would take our entire costume off, we would go down into the tunnels, we would go to costuming, give them the soaking wet thing, they would give us completely fresh shoes. I think I had 200 pairs of shoes when I left there <laughs> that had my name on them. It was crazy. And, and 200 outfits. I mean, it was so... You know, it was like working at a Hollywood studio at that time. And you'd go down to costuming and, you know, you'd, you'd tell them, they would say, oh, hi, Ray, and they'd put, you'd pull you up and there would be this rack of clothes with my name and all my different costumes. And, wow. You know, and if you, if you gained weight, you were in trouble. So you had to be careful about how many of those good turkey sandwiches or the, the pineapple teriyaki hamburgers that we all love from Adventureland Cafe. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Now, I, I have here you did some work or uh, character work or something on the Empress Lily. Yeah, so in the beginning, when I first went, I was a character. I worked in the character department. And I worked on and off of the character department for the whole time I was there because I loved that. And the Darlene Faber, who was a manager there, she was such a great supporter of me, knowing that I had ambition to go further. And she really supported it when some of the other people looked at me like, well, first of all, I was out and gay, which in 1979 was not a, was not something that was necessarily 
um, acceptable to a lot of people, uh, sure. especially in the South, especially in the South with a lot of um, Baptists and uh, deeply religious Christian people who um, did not accept that and called it a lifestyle. Um, so, you know, she was a big supporter of mine, which was really great. And um, when they put me as Goofy, one of the uh, one of the turns I would do, we would go to the Empress Lily and do the character breakfast. Yeah. You have to remember, we would go out in 1979. The company was not doing well. From what the rumor always was that the company was for sale, which I believe is the truth. I think it's part of the history now. Um, there was nobody in the park. I mean, the, the rumor was that they were courting American Express and or the Coca-Cola company to buy the company. Um, it wasn't doing well. The movies, you have to remember, 1979, the magic was really gone. They put out both <laughs> the Black Cauldron. And Nothing of Black notable, Hall. yeah. Yeah, they had a, it was a very tough time for the animation department. Um, so the, it was, it was doing, it was rough. So, you know, these are the days where we just roam the park as characters. They say, okay, Goofy, you're going to just do Fantasyland today. So just, you know, go out, roam around and we'll check on you. And you would go out and do it 20 minutes, then go back in 20 minutes. And sometimes you wouldn't even see anybody. <laughs> and in the mornings, if you did the morning shift, we would go, they would say, okay, it's time to go out. And we would go. And at the top of main street, they would have like a red, velvet rope across the top and that they would let everybody in the park up but up to the top of main street where the hot dog is on one side and i forget what's what was across the street from the hot dog place and people would be waiting and then we would come in and line up single file in front of that red rope waving at everybody and then they would shout at us go and we were all instructed to walk not even run just to go to different lands so Goofy would go up through the castle into, and Mickey and Minnie and Donald would go to Fantasyland and the Br'er Bear and those guys would go over into Adventureland and Liberty Square. Other ones would go over to uh, Tomorrowland and then they would drop the rope and people would follow us. Meanwhile, there was hardly anybody on that other side of that rope. I mean, there was just nobody in the park. When I, in 1980, when we did shows in front of the castle, sometimes we'd have 10 people watching. Oh my gosh. It was a totally different time. Now, luckily, a year, you know, uh, a year or so later, once we did Tencennial, everything changed. We were so, I mean, we did a, I remember that we did the first New Year's Eve show and they closed the park at like 10 a.m. I mean, it totally changed the, well, the economy changed, obviously, and the company really came back. So, but part of our shift, as, which we would be rotated in, was to go over to, uh, <clears throat> to the Empress Lily over in Lake Buena Vista, which was, I loved it. It was really an early shift. I think we had to be at work at like 7 a.m. and get those costumes, and we would hop in a van at the back of the tunnel. The back of the tunnel, the tunnel system is underneath, you know, the whole... Yeah, the um, utilidors down there. Right, and so the tunnel, the entrance to the tunnel is right behind the castle. So you would go to the tunnel, and they'd pick you up in a van, and we would drive over to the Empress Lily, and we would put our costumes on, and they would have a character, meet-and-greet breakfast. Mm -hmm. And I loved the Empress Lily. I'm, every time I, we were just down there, and I, every time I look at what they did to that beautiful Empress Lily, I just cry a little. I hate to be nostalgic like that, but that's one thing they changed that I just, just I think they missed the mark. It was such a beautiful, and it was named after Disney's 
wife, I believe. Yes. Really, right? Mm-hmm. It was, Correct. Yeah. So, and it was such a beautiful. It really looked like it really looked like a riverboat, you know. Well, and yeah, it was and such they had a great place. Lots of clubs and you know little bars and different restaurants in there and things, just different options. Yeah. It was a neat, neat thing to <laughs> to have is, is something. And mountain. beautiful at night. Yeah, you know when that was that tiny little village with the brown buildings that again Disney wanted everything to blend in. You, you could barely know that that village was there when you drove up. Sure, you know. And we, but we would do character breakfasts. I think it was it was from like eight to ten or something, and it was great because you would walk around and, you know, especially Goofy, you'd knock your head on the bric-a-brac ceilings and stuff because it was such a hard costume to get around. But it usually was like Mickey, Goofy, and Donald, or Mickey, Minnie, or Minnie, Goofy, and Donald. Mickey and Minnie didn't do it a lot together. Because I always, I, I think they always felt like one mouse was enough, <laughs> and then they would try to, yeah, and then they would give like the other VIP character, um, like uh, a Donald, or sometimes Chippendale would go with Minnie. Chippendale was one of the most popular character costumes back then. I mean, Pete, Chippendale would go on set, and people would go crazy, almost more than Mickey. They <laughs> loved Chippendale, and I loved Chippendale. I mean, I, I, I was noted as the crier. I would cry during parades. <laughs> if I was with Mickey, I would always start crying. I was just thought it was so beautiful and so magical. <clears throat> it was something I dreamed of my whole life. And I used to watch Mickey, and I, I, it was just, I, it, it, was, it was magical. It was so amazing to see him. And I, would get, I still get chills when I see him, you know. Yeah. Although it does freak me out when they talk or blink their eyes. Yeah, I that's a little different that they now. do that. It's, <laughs> It, it just freaks me out a little bit, but I mean, they're cartoons. They don't need to blink their eyes. <laughs> they don't need to blink, do they? No, I don't, I, I don't think so. Yeah. But that's, that's so. <laughs> what, what was next? Now we have two big ones to talk about here: the Epcot opening day and Hoopty Doo. What did you do in, in? Let's go in order here. So, which was the next thing you had to do? So it was Ten Centennial. Then Ten Centennial happened, and we rolled right into opening Epcot, which was huge. Now. Epcot was being built. We did, I remember we did an Epcot, an Epcot, um, an Epcot dump, basically, out where Epcot was built. It was all swamp. Yeah. They had all these, this press, and they built this, like, rickety stage and put some speakers and fireworks up, and we did this Epcot number for all the press, and they put... They sent fireworks off, and if I remember correctly, they set the swamp on fire. Wow. <laughs> because I think that's when that happened, because the fire, because it was the swamp, and, it, you know, it's, it's a bog, and bogs burn, and then they burn very deep in that bog. It's like a smoldering thing. And back then, remember, this? I used to drive to work from Kirkman Road, and we would drive the back way, and it was all orange grove, all that, where there are now homes and universal, none of that highway system really existed. I-4 was two lanes each way, and we would drive to work through the orange grove, which, by the way, I'm just going to do a, sh- a really quick story. In the character department in 1979, when because it was all orange grove still, there was a huge orange industry still in Orlando, Central Florida. Yeah. Um, it was before the weather changed because, you know, uh, all the chemicals, I guess, we pumped into the atmosphere. Um, they would call Disney and say, 
we need help saving the oranges tonight. And they would ask us in the character department, do you want to go in the groves and light smudge pots? And I was like, hell yeah. What does oh that God, mean? I'm gonna... So what they would do when the frost was coming, now, they, now when that happens, they spray the orange groves with water so that the water freezes. And when water freezes over the oranges and the trees and the leaves, the temperature never goes below 32 degrees because frozen water stays at 32 degrees. Okay. So if it can go to 10 degrees, but if there's water frozen on it, it, the plant stays at 32 degrees and there's less damage. But back in 1979, they didn't know that, I guess, and they would put smudge pots. There were smudge pots all through the groves full of, like, coal, and you would light them, go around lighting them, and they would burn in the groves in these big pots and keep the groves warmer. But they would also pump thick, thick black smoke oh. into the air. We didn't have masks. And we would. I remember doing it and going back to Disney property at like 5 in the morning, completely black, covered in smog, smoke, and ash. And it was fantastic. <laughs> thought it was the best thing I had ever done in my life. It was I think I smelled like smoke for months. I well, don't know. Well, Disney did but have a tie-in like, with like the orange industry and all that down there and like they had like oh, yeah. the different stands in the parks and that. So maybe that's the the hook well, with yeah, that. Well, yeah, they had a yeah, and they had a big and they were surrounded. They you know, Disney really supported the local farmers and stuff and they had a big contract with I guess um the Orange Bird was was that Sunkiss Come to the Florida Sunshine Tree. It was the Florida Orange Grove, Orange Growers. Yeah, the the society. And we, and we used to sing. We I don't know how many times we sang that song. Come to the Florida Sunshine Tree. So many times because it used to play over near the Tiki Room. Did you, you ever see the Orange Bird frozen. out and about? We didn't have the Orange Bird back then. Okay. We never. We didn't. We didn't have that costume. Came later. But the Orange Bird had a huge. He's one of my favorite characters, by the way. I love I love the Orange Bird. Um, but then there was the whole mess up with Anita Bryant, and that they really, when that whole thing happened, the Orange Bird kind of went away, then came back. Now I think he's back full force. But, um, you know, they had that frozen orange juice mixed with soft-serve vanilla. Oh, makes my mouth water just talking about it. Right. It used to be a, quite a nice treat. During between the fifth and sixth show on a ninety-five degree day, <laughs> we would sneak over and get our twenty percent discount and get a and get a nice thing. So, um, okay, so after Centennial, we started working on Epcot. We did the ground jumping. We did a we did that thing where they had trucks out in the swamp and dumped soil, and everyone, woo, Epcot's going to be great. Then they built Epcot, and then we would go over and test the rides. I can't tell you how many times I've had to walk down from the very top of. Um, spaceship Earth with the lights on, and that dinosaur. What was it? The energy ride. Yeah, Universe of Energy. Ride. System. Oh my God, the ride system is constantly broken. I I think it took a dozen times for me to ride that before I ever got through the whole thing. It was constantly breaking, and we rehearsed that Epcot. That was big, but they didn't think anybody was going to show up. They thought, oh, we're going to have this small crowd. You know, the press, we're going to do a TV special with CBS, I think it was on. And, you know, uh, Walk, Mr. Walker, I think he was head of the company at the time. Um, and I think he 
spoke at the Epcot opening. Is that was that? Pretty sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, he was very nice. We, he used to come to and talk to us all the time. He was a great, great leader and a great man for Disney. Um, we, uh, I never, uh, we slept that night in the, we didn't, we didn't go home for like three nights. We slept in the parade, uh, garage in, on cots. I mean, we were running, I remember we were rehearsing that till like four in the morning in front of Spaceship Earth and then went back and took naps. We were running on like no sleep for that. Every time I watched that opening, I think this was so hard to do. We were so tired. I mean, but it was like one of those moments because they, they thought, you know, maybe a thousand people would show up. Well, I think they had something like 10,000. It was like crazy how many people they had show up that day. Now, why'd you they have so many, food. why'd you have so many rehearsals? Like, what was the reason for doing it? Like, just because it was so elaborate or was it because it was a big deal? Like, what was your reason? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was both. I mean, we worked, they brought in a, a Pam Killinger was brought in as a choreographer. We worked with her for, I want to say, two months. She was very into, at the time, it was this kind of organic. If you watch that opening, I'm sure people think, what are they doing? <laughs> I mean, what is that? It's 1981. Yes. And it's our, it's our, our idea of what space, wearing the... Okay, I got to tell you, those white, we're wearing white and silver jumpsuits uh-huh. that we were basically sewn into. <laughs> they were so tight. And, you know, stretch fabrics, in 1981, stretch fabrics were not normal. Like, they didn't make stretch jeans and stretch, you know, even tights. I mean, Lycra wasn't invented until the 60s and really didn't become a regular thing until very much later. So every time we wore something, it was, like, made right to our bodies and those jumpsuits let me tell you we're trying to move in those when they put us in those we were like um if i bend over it's over our back is gonna <laughs> it's over honey and we had to do all this we called it organic choreography we worked like two months with pam um who's a great choreographer and worked with her and she let us work together if you if you watch that tape I'm in the center stage. There's four of us. And then there's four to the right, four to the left. So we were in our groups and we would work together to think of choreography to do that she would give us moves. And so it was a very organic way to choreograph um, and work as a team, which was a great way to do it. And, of course, we thought we this was the most amazing thing ever. <laughs> and, you know, so it took, we had eight weeks of – and then – on top of that, they had high schools, they had bands, they had every department was carrying signs, and musicians were hired. It was gigantic. It was huge. And nothing in the park was ready. I mean, those ride systems were not ready. The food was not ready. The paint was wet. I mean, it was kind of like what happened at Disneyland, right, when it opened the famous story of people sitting on benches and sinking into the wet asphalt that was so hot and then not cured yet. And the, 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 they said that the, the benches that people would sit on at Disneyland would sink into the asphalt. <laughs> dry. It was kind of like that. But, again, they never thought that many people would show up. And it was. They were blown. We were blown away. I remember being backstage, I think on, on my pictures on Facebook, I posted that picture of me standing 
under Spaceship Earth, giving like full on face, like in my white outfit. And we, we were just so tired. And then, you know, you're getting your energy up, you're jumping up and down and you're all together as a group. And we walked out and it was like, oh my God, where did all these people come from? <laughs> they told us no one was gonna hardly be here except press. I mean, the, the, park, the, the, the parking lot was like full at like seven in the morning or something. They had no idea. Needless to say, they had not. They had not not enough food. The ride systems were breaking, but people didn't care. We did that opening, and it was one of the most amazing days. And then, I believe, I think I have my history right. We went from that opening, and then had to open the Orlando airport, and do the opening of the new Orlando airport. Because when I first moved there in 1979, the Orlando airport was, you landed on a tarmac, walked down a flight of stairs, and walked into this tiny little building and got a car. And that was it. And then they built the new Orlando airport, and we did the opening. So we were exhausted and then had to go do another big thing. So while we were rehearsing Epcot, we were also rehearsing the Orlando airport. I believe that's the right history. That's awesome. And we were, it was crazy. It was crazy. But it was, uh, it was, you know, um, it was an amazing time for us and being young and, um, you know, we learned so much um, and it was exciting. And, you know, you're young, you're, you know, you did everything. And again, Card Walker was in charge and he was so great. And I mean, he just, you know, it was really, it was a very different company. It was a very different company. And then it was, after that, um, I was doing, I was in the, we had two, we had the Kids of the Kingdom and the Showtime Singers. We were the same groups with two different names and we were either in front of the castle doing the Disney medley or, uh, Amer or uh, Lady America, which was the salute to America, uh -huh. or or the group was, would be over in Tomorrowland doing Disney World is your world, which was created, the show created by Barnett Ritchie for the Disneyland anniversary and then brought over to Walt Disney World and they wrote the 10th Centennial song. Um, Walt Disney World, 10th uh -huh. and uh, so one. we would switch yeah and it would that was i loved that song and that show was amazing and so we would switch the groups would go back and forth so there was always a show in front of the castle and always one in tomorrowland and we were then they wrote so then they wrote a new new year's eve show and we were i was out in front of the castle doing our shows and unbeknownst to me they wrote this new year's eve show called cinderella's sparkling new year i think it was called it was a brand new show and it was uh written for my group the showtime singers and uh they were walking through the park because they this is when they had brought the animators to disney world they moved them to florida during a time where, by the way, it was like, you know, the hound of, I don't know, the fox and the hound was made and some really bad, not great. Not all, great. all the classics that we all know and love. Uh, you know? Yeah, the, the <laughs> big classics, yeah. Um, 
And they want to do, for the first time, they wanted to have the stepmother, Madame Tremaine, and the stepdaughters be face characters. Now, back then, and I think still very much so, to be a face character, you had to get approved by an animator, approved by upper management. It was a very big deal if you got to be Snow White or Cinderella. That was, there was no higher value in entertainment, and, in, and especially in characters. Those were very, very special. And it was a long process to get approved. And um, so they were looking for a stepmother and the daughters, and they just couldn't find anybody. And then we stepped off the stage, and the stage manager said, Ray, they need to see you up in the office. Well, that was never yeah, that's anything not good. you wanted to hear. You didn't want to hear you had to go to the office. And it was like, wait, we only get an hour. Now I have to run down to Main Street. The entertainment offices were above Main Street, um, above the Emporium on Main Street. So I ran down there, and I walk in a room that is full of suits, which is nothing scarier for an entertainer. Yeah, what did I, I do? into a bunch of suits. <laughs> and they said, sit down, Ray. We have to talk to you. We have to talk to you fast. So we're doing this new New Year's Eve show. And they're all hemming and hawing, like, oh, and they're all, they don't want to look at me. And I'm like, what's going on? I got a show and I really would like a turkey sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And they said, so we want to have the stepmother and the stepdaughters as face characters and we can't find anybody. And this is so and so. He's one of the animators and you were doing a show and he looked up and he said, that guy right there looks just like Madame Tremaine. And I just looked at him and I said, yes. And they go, what do you mean? <laughs> I go, yes, I would love to be. Madame Tremaine. Now remember, I'm an out, one of the only few out gay guys, you know. At yeah, the and then time. what year is this too? 1981, 82 in that range? Yeah, yeah, 1981. So, and they were like, really? I was like, I would love it. Let's do it. Let's do it. I, I said, plus, what are you, I said to them, what are you worried about? I'm going to be on a stage a mile away from people. You sell out, there'll be people at the front gate watching this show. No one's going to know that I'm just not a big woman, you know, with yeah. a face that matches. And I actually look just like her. I have the same profile as her. I look <laughs> just like her. So we went through, I can't even tell you, probably six months of costuming and makeup and hair. And, you know, this was drag when drag was not RuPaul Drag's Race. There was no YouTube to look at how to turn a man into, you know, makeup and all that. It was just a very different time. And, then they found two guys to do the sisters who were in the character department as well. One was a great comedy guy who ended up working at, um, there was that Renaissance, those Renaissance players in Epcot. I forget what they were called. He was part of that. And okay. another guy who, 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 who ended up becoming an Imagineer and just recently retired actually, Mike Beechin. Um, and we did it. And let me tell you, it is infamously, I am I am infamously part of the LGBTQIA history of Walt Disney World. Little did I know that I paved the way for Walt Disney World and the Disney Company to accept and be more open to gay people because I played that role, which I had no idea at 22 years old. I was just having fun. I just thought, look, I get this big purple dress. <laughs> I get this. I get to be the lead of the show. Yeah, you're a trailblazer. Look at you. Running around like the chorus. Yeah, I get to have this great role. But it, uh, you know, many years later, I've had people say to me, you know, you really changed the world for us as gay people with this company. 
And I mean, that's a great legacy, right? Yeah, that's awesome. So I can't, that's a great story. And it was that same week that we were fired. (laughs) You did such a good (laughs) job. They came to us between, between Christmas and New Year's. They came to us and said, well, after January 1st, you guys, there's no more job. There's, we're not going to have two groups. They've cut the budget. Meanwhile, the park was packed every day. This was, you know, the economy was back. This is when things started changing. They said, you know, we can't, we shouldn't have two groups, and we're getting rid of you. And they made us audition. It was the worst, probably one of the worst moments of my life as learning this business to watch us pitted against our friends, fighting and battling each other throughout four or five hour audition process for all these suits who cared nothing about us and didn't treat us like human beings, quite honestly. And people crying and, you know, and didn't honor a contract. We were contracted through June. They didn't honor them. They were like, oh, sorry, we don't need you anymore. I was luckily given a job at the Hoop to do review. So how did that happen then? You just did you audition or did they like did you know yeah. somebody? So we auditioned. They sent us. We all went into this room. It was like four, four to five hours, making us sing and then sing again and sing again and dance and do jazz and do tap and ballet. It was horrible and treating us as if we were people they didn't know when most of us had worked for them for years. And uh, the woman, a new woman, had taken over Hoop to do review. And um, she was part of that long table of suits watching us. And she came to me and said, you think you could be a cowboy? And I said, sure, I can be a cowboy. Okay, then I'm going to hire you. You're going to go in and become Johnny. You're going to be the uh, three-day Johnny at the Hoop to Do Review. So the Hoop to Do Review at the time was set up that there was a four-day Johnny and a three-day Johnny. So you had a four-day cast and a three-day cast because it ran seven days, seven nights a week, two shows a night. So, you know, the four-day cast would do eight shows and the three-day cast would do six shows. So it was really like a full, a full week's work in three days or four days, depending on what you did. And I, I, became the three-day Johnny, and I worked with amazing people there, and I learned the show in uh, less than a week, I think, maybe a week, by a girl who ran that show, was in that show forever, Pam, Pam O'Bannon, Pammy O'Bannon, who is just a wonderful, amazing human being, was, had worked at the Diamond Horseshoe Review, and did everything like all of us did at, on property. For years and years, she ran that show, and um, Barbara Epstein was the woman who took it over, who was, I would say, challenging for many of us, Um, (laughs) but she gave me a job, so I was nice and smiled. Yeah. Um, And the other Johnny at the time was a guy named Dennis Atkinson, who was a beautiful human being who was actually uh, murdered many years, a couple of years later. unfortunately, but he was in the Mame movie. He's standing to, uh, like, right next to Lucille Ball in the Mame movie and did many men- MGM musicals and was a mentor of mine and was such a great, beautiful person who, when things changed, when I was at the Hoop to Do, things really had started changing for entertainment. The managers had changed and the people who came in. Um, I would say put it nicely, weren't nice. I have to be honest. They just weren't nice. It was tough. 
they, they, these were tough managers, tough entertainment people who would never get away with that behavior today. I have to say that. I mean, gotcha. people, that might ruffle that might ruffle some feathers, but I, it was truthful. It was it was hard, and you know, it was like a family. And when you work there, the amount of years that many of us did. It was so disrespectful how they ended that employment. And look, it was a lesson learned, right? In in the entertainment business, there's nothing guaranteed. You have a contract. When it's over, it's over. So we were never really fired, but we were just not renewed. And I gotcha. Dennis was not renewed. Dennis, they didn't feel Dennis was part of the new look, the new type of what they wanted. But Dennis was a great guy, and he really taught me. And when Dennis left, I took over the four-day Slot. How you um, sent you sent me a bunch of pictures. These are like promo shots and different things. How did you get into that? Was that just by chance? All the hoop to yeah, promos. Yeah, I mean, so um, yeah, that was just by chance. You know, again, those promo pictures that um, I, I think I'm wearing a purple outfit with a pink tie. Um, those were Barbara Epstein had come in, and though they had changed the costuming, she changed the look, she changed a lot of the feel of that show feeling that uh, I think they felt at the time it needed to be updated, which, of course, when you have people that have been doing the show for years, they don't like updates. It's a difficult transition. It was a bit difficult, I think. But I learned basically the new show. I did the old show, but then learned some of it. They added, they added clogging for Johnny and changed some things. And I think because it was this big change and the costume colors were changed and updated, um, we had our pictures taken a lot. You know, and that, there's that, there, we were on, I was on the bus up until, I think I'm still on a bus, and some of the pictures, postcards still exist, people still can buy postcards, I think, of that shot. Oh, yeah. Um, of our cast. Um, so, I think it was the new look, and that, I have to say, that cast, and that, that was an exciting cast. Those were some of the staples. Pammy, I think, is in that picture. She's my Claire. Uh, it was a, those were such talented and wonderful people. There was a girl, Susan Layton, who was Dolly. Um, she ended up, she's still at Disney as an entertainment manager. Um, and then in 1984, I was not renewed. And actually, yeah, my job was given to a guy, Billy Flanagan, who was a Showtime singer with me, who still is an entertainer working for Disney this day. Wow. He's still, he's in the, it's the fish show at uh, uh, the um, oh, Finding like Nemo. The Finding, yeah, the Finding Nemo show. That big puppet thing they do with the puppets. And yeah, at Animal Kingdom. All that. He's yeah, in Animal Kingdom. He's in that, but he has worked since that day. Since we all got hired in whatever that was, 1979, 1980. He is still working. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's like great. Forty years. Yeah, he has. He very lucky. Raised a family, and you know, I mean, that's a rarity in the entertainment business. So, uh, yeah. So I don't know if you remember. I sent you a picture of my dad on stage at the Hoopty Doo, and it was mm-hmm. like a Polaroid taken. Uh, I, in my wife's been on. I feel like I'm the only person that hasn't been on stage at the Hoopty Doo. Um, but my yeah. dad's picture. He's there, dressed like he's got an Indian feather in all that. And I asked you. Yeah. I said. Did did you take the picture? Did you walk up and take a picture? Tell me the story of how these pictures were taken, because I think it's super clever how that worked. Yeah, so um, I believe that all of that has been cut out of the show. Yeah, that is not there anymore, and the clubs and the the foam foam mallets or whatever you guys had. 
Yeah, I don't, I think they figure finally figured out that putting a guy in an Indian outfit is not overly respectful. Um, so, but oh, I'm looking at that picture now. So, uh, there was a, in front of the along the front of the stage. Um, uh, there were like lanterns, old-fashioned lanterns that look like stage lights. Would it be stage lights in the old days? Um, and the, in the center lantern had a Polaroid camera in it that was hooked up to an automatic button that the tech guy would do. The tech booth was in the balcony in the very back uh, over where you would enter. And he, when we would put him, you know, they, we would have the guy stand there in the little loincloth or, um, or the little kid in his little Davy outfit and have them stand and he would push it and get the Polaroid would be taken. And then uh, while everything's going on stage, we'd take the Polaroid and let it develop and we'd have the Polaroid. That's great. <laughs> it's very clever. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm like, yeah, I'm looking at that picture and I think it's crazy too that I- I'm assuming you're not in, you're not in the picture, but uh, you said you recognize the people in there. So I'm assuming you were in that yeah. show. Yeah. I, this was one of my dollies that I worked Patty Calber and the girl playing Claire in the purple that was Sandy, um, who uh, is very famous. Um, she's a hugely famous voiceover actress, um, Sandy Fox. She does. She is the official voice of Betty Boop. She's done. She's the voice of many, many anime stars um, in many movies. She's lived in L.A. Her and her husband are both very, very big uh, voice actors who are in tons and tons of stuff. And that was Sandy. And what's funny, because I'm 6'4", and Sandy was probably five foot. Yeah. Maybe a little less. She played Minnie at one time and did the voice of Minnie at one time as well. Oh, okay. So, all right, I have a couple questions here before we wrap up, and I wanted to uh, pick your brain on these things. Now, we heard a story uh, about the, if you're you're standing at their Epcot opening day, actually I got two Epcot questions for you. It w- would have been behind you guys. There was like that acrylic looking fountain, you know, with the three pylons, right. which they just brought back. We heard a story that the night before the park opened, the designer of the fountain or somebody in charge noticed a massive crack in the acrylic and they had to do a last minute pylon change of one of the, the pylons the night before. Did you see that happen? Um, so I, that fountain, because we were always out there rehearsing and stuff, <clears throat> and that fountain had so many problems. Oh, my gosh. Because those acrylic pylon things, that, that was like new technology back then. Those yeah. were, they were new. And I, 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 I would say I would be 75% sure that that's a true story. Okay. I remember us rehearsing and them majorly having to redo that fountain, which we did our ceremony on, by the way. <laughs> and what them wondering is it gonna are we is it gonna stand up? Is it gonna work? Is it gonna be there? I just remember. I don't remember them actually lowering because I mean we were so busy and tired and everything else. I don't actually remember them lowering like a new pylon in, but I remember that fountain being such a mess and having so many problems and us not them like, well, we'll just go out and if that happens, we will make sure there's a place for you guys to be. 
<laughs> Got it. Don't worry about the fountain. So, See, we heard that it now now it's different with LED tech and all that, but we heard that there were such high intensity, you know, lights under the the water that that heat and cold and and all that just is what fatigued the the acrylic, and that's what and the rumor was that they had a spare fountain. So like you know, there's three pylons in there, and they had three spares. Well, after they exhausted all the spares, that's when they pulled it, you know, through the 90s and the 2000s. Yeah, and that. It, yeah, it was cracking and. It was just it was a, just a different time. I don't think they knew how to build that stuff. It was a big deal. I remember them talking like it was such a big deal yeah. to have that acrylic stuff, which they I don't think they really, it was just a new technology. Okay, so I'm looking here at a picture you sent me, and this we'll put all this in the show notes. Uh, it looks like you guys are in the same outfits and in a similar fashion, song and dance, the whole thing in front of over on the Universe of Energy, over the dinosaur ride we talked about. Did you guys have to go over yeah, there so, and do a separate thing? Yeah, so we, oh, every single attraction had an opening because, remember, they were big sponsors. Yeah. Um, each, each, each pavilion had a sponsor. So we, and so those, when those all we did Universe of Energy, we did The Land, we did, um, oh my God, I think we did all of them. But we were disbanded. So Epcot opened, and then they got rid of us, and then all of these different pavilions were opening, and we were the ones who knew all the choreography and the songs and all that stuff, so they they would call us back. And you can't see in that picture, but there are some different members of the group because some of the people didn't get rehired and then they had to fill them in. So a lot of the kids of the kingdom and the Showtime singers got to be, um, they were called world dancers. If you remember back in the day, Epcot did a big world dancer show in front of the American pavilion with like, they, they saluted all the different countries through song and dance. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people who were Kids of the Kingdom and Showtime Singers became world dancers. So when we opened these pavilions, they used, they would call us back along with and fill in with world dancers. And <clears throat> I can certainly tell you that being at the Hoop to Do Review and eating a lot of fried chicken and cornbread and ribs, <laughs> trying to get into that outfit, they had to put a compression suit under my suit to get me in it. Wow. Now, I was like a, I was like literally a 30 inch waist at six, four. And I think when I, we got called back to do like energy and stuff, I was like maybe a 31 or a 32, but that thing was basically stitched to us. So it was, it was, I just, it was so hard to do. And we were, all of us were like, Oh my God, I can't get this outfit on. <laughs> we had, I mean, it was just different, you know, and we were getting older, you get thicker. You know, but yeah. we, so we opened all those pavilions. We would, and it was fun to go back and see everybody, and you know, obviously miss some of the people that were not there any longer. But it was great. It was great fun. So we opened all those pavilions, and it's very blurry. I mean, people send me pictures, and they go, "Oh my god, I totally forgot we did that one too." Oh, and that one, and that one. You that, know, that's funny. Yeah. You're, you're all over the place there. Yeah, and then and then you know they would be like, okay, you're gonna do that. Do you remember that we would have like two rehearsals, and they give us the song and say, you have to learn the lyrics. What the universe of energy? 
from the town to the sea to the you're like i don't know what is this song <laughs> they all had a song it seemed like this stuff. yes yeah the land come to the land like i don't know it's so crazy <laughs> So, so crazy. when yeah. you go back now, this is what I always like. Have you done like anything that's like, oh, that's still the same, or oh, like, have you been to Hoopty Doo since, but like, to actually as a guest? Yeah, so we went back a couple of years ago. Um, uh, pre, well, COVID really screws everything up. So it's probably been about six years ago. We, my husband and I, went with our nephews and his sister and her family. We went and we went to the Hoopty Doo review. And um, it's always, uh, it's a little bittersweet because this, I mean, I love being back there. I love, I still love Disney. I have great memories. Um, it was a time in my life as a young man learning about life, learning about this business, which I've had a 42-year full-time career in, and I really give it all to Disney for teaching me how to have that. <clears throat> and we went back and... I didn't tell anybody we were going. We just went, well, the waiters were, I would say, 30 to 40% of the waiters worked when I was there and oh, recognized wow. me. They all came over. Afterward, we took a picture. The cast came and said, oh, my God, we've heard so much about you. Your cast is infamous. I mean, I have to say, again, we call it the golden years of entertainment. I mean, you know... Back then, I mean, when I, you would walk up into the entertainment offices and up behind Main Street, and there were pictures on the wall, and it was all pictures of us. Wow. We were like, at the, it was the golden years. It was all up, pictures of us doing all these shows, and it wasn't like, you know, there weren't casts before us, but it was really a golden time. I mean, come on, Tencennial, opening Epcot. I mean, these were, this was a huge, two huge years for Disney for sure and the part and so it was it it was great it was great being back and the waiters and they all wanted a picture and it was uh it was a kind of a great moment you know to know that anybody quite honestly as a performer you think nobody it was nice to know somebody cared yeah oh yeah and I mean that's <laughs> you the know, you yeah. know that that's the the reason that show keeps going too I mean you know you, you plant that seed in people and they want to see it again and again I think I've been three or four times myself so it's you know it's one of those oh, it's things a great show and then it's uh, a great show and I'm glad it's back yeah it's it's starting this week is as we're recording this so that's super exciting well, uh, Ray, I, I you know want to wrap it up here. I appreciate all the the stories and the the behind the scenes stuff. Do you want to? Uh, where can people find you? What you're up to? Anywhere you want to send them to ah. see what you're doing now? <laughs> yes, I mean, uh, look, I do a lot of stuff. I mean, uh, you know, I simply I'm on Facebook under Ray DeForest, um, D E F O R E S T. Um, easy to find. I also uh, have an account under my. So I have a, a series on Broadway on Demand, which is now streaming on YouTube. I have a character called Doris Deer. It's based on my mom. My mom died of Alzheimer's, and I created this character that is her basically her daughter. And I do I do big shows here in New York City and at Off Broadway Theater, and we sell out. We do a big Christmas show. I tour around with the show. So Doris Deer D E A R has a uh, a Facebook page. Doris Deer is also on Instagram, of course. Oh, cool. Instagram. I'm not on TikTok. I'm too old for TikTok. 
Yeah, um, it's it's so, it's another world to yeah, me there. Yeah, I don't know about like, that one. Yeah, my agent's like, do, do you think you could do TikTok? I just look at him and say, yeah, you should do TikTok. So <laughs> I'm on Instagram on Doris Deer NY. So Doris D O R I S D E A R N Y, and I also have, um, you know, I consider <clears throat> myself non-binary in the world. It's what um, so. I have an Instagram account under Ray DeForest that uh, my pronouns are he, him, but it's under the title of the Instagram is he wears heels and hose. All one word. Perfect. You can go and look. Yeah, you can go and look at that. It's my non-binary clothes have hashtag clothes have no gender. Um, You know, I've always been a leader and a fighter in the LGBTQI world. I do a lot of work with my my union and such um, to help actors feel comfortable with who they are and be authentically them. And I have a website, www.dorsdeer.com, which is all my videos, linked to my YouTube channel where you can see my series, three seasons every Friday. We have a new episode come out. I interview Academy Award-winning actors, Broadway actors, uh, famous jazz artists, singers. It's really fantastic. We've won several awards now, and it keeps on going. That's awesome. Well, uh, thank you for sharing all that. We'll we'll put links in the show notes because uh, every show we've got you know a little bit of extra with it, and we'll put all the pictures you shared because those are gems in themselves. And uh, but <laughs> I I appreciate your time, Ray. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun chatting with you, and I'm glad we uh, we finally got you on, and uh, we can get this one uh, on the on the site as we, as we say. So oh, I appreciate it. It's great talking. Thanks for keeping the history alive as they say oh yeah definitely well thank you ray and uh that's going to end it for this episode and uh as we say every episode brian take us out follow the lake buena vista historical society on twitter and instagram at lbv history and on the web at lbvhistory.org for all things retro disney world including exclusive merchandise visit us on the web at retrowdw.com and on twitter instagram and facebook at retrowdw and follow our hosts todd mccartney on twitter at wdwms hal bowers on twitter and instagram at goawaygreen jt kuzier on twitter at ls1jt and on youtube at rubber city motoring and on the web at rubbercitymotoring.com and you can find me on twitter facebook and instagram at brian p miles retro disney world is the monthly podcast of the lake buena vista historical society a nonpartisan, nonprofit, tax-exempt 501c3 organization and is not affiliated in any way with the walt disney corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities